Big Thinking, celebrating 175 years of Bradley College with fascinating speakers from our community. So good evening everyone and a warm welcome to the Big Thinking Talks, a series of TED-style talks developed as part of Bradley's 175th year of celebrations. These talks are designed to reveal the breadth of thinking that sits within the Radley community, featuring perspectives from Dons, Old Radleyans and Radley parents and boys. The aim is to inspire and to challenge and to encourage us all to reflect on our future world. And now, stepping up to our virtual podium, I'd like to introduce Oliver Bayliss, Director of Architect Firm Buckley Gray Yeoman, who has 20 years of experience, over 20 years of experience in architecture and has worked in both the UK and in Europe. He's also a visiting lecturer for London Metropolitan University and was recently selected as a workplace expert panel member for the New London Architecture Company. Oliver will be talking about cities of the future, exploring the impact of today's culture on how we live and how we work. After his talk, he'll be questioned by Old Radleyan and young architect Guy, um, Guy Carter, who is currently completing the final semester of his part one Reba architecture course. Now that's enough from me. I'm gonna hand you over to Oliver now to talk about cities of the future. Thank you, Oliver. Thank you, Caroline. No one's ever said all of that back to me, so it's quite flattering to hear all of it. So um, yes, thank you. Um, I uh, was at Radley, I left in 1998. I was a G-social boy. I went on to qualify as an architect. And as um, Caroline mentioned, I'm now um, a director of a, an architectural practice here. In, in London, we have offices here in London, we have another studio in Bristol. We work across most sectors, I would say, um, both here in the UK and internationally as well. Um, it's quite a big top topic, future cities. Um, so I'm gonna try and capture what I think are the main, the main elements really, and I look forward to your questions at the end. I'll try and keep it brief. I've got about 20 minutes, so I'm gonna hit the timer. Um, so, in the past few years have seen probably the biggest urban change in decades really and and that has come about mainly from from two things one is um covid obviously um, and what has done that done to our cities and our city centers but also climate change something which is something that we cannot ignore and we need to take on board certainly throughout all of the design phases that we go through um but what it has done, certainly COVID, it sort of made us really think about what our cities are for and why we need them. Um, during the pandemic, cities, well, some cities, took the opportunity to sort of reinvent themselves. Um, London, for, for example, and I'll refer a lot to London, given that I sort of live and work here, um, laid down kilometers of cycle paths to facilitate um, the cyclists, the many cyclists that use that use the roads here in London, planting trees. A lot of cities went on a tree planting bonanza, um, reclaimed streets and pavements. So Soho, you know, the center of town in Soho that reclaimed all of their pavements and, and streets. So all of the restaurants and bars could use those, those surfaces. What happened was the pandemic turned this up, this utopian really idea of a less crowded, greener, more equitable, open city into a reality. And, and it did it overnight, um, which was quite staggering. All of the ingredients were there actually to do that before COVID, but policy and habit mainly sort of restricted us. Um, but the city that um, is as a, as a 10,000 year notion really, um, was was under threat really as a notion and people thought that perhaps our cities had now become redundant but I don't think I'm not going to I'm going to try not to make too many predictions here but um, I certainly don't think that our cities will disappear if anything that they will evolve they will evolve on um, fast forward and and in themselves um, improve um, ultimately upheavals, drastic events like COVID and like climate change um, leads, to, leads to change in itself and leads to improvements um, that we as designers need to take on board um, going forward. So I've asked a few questions myself during this. Um, one is, you know, what does that city of the future look like? Um, I think it's less about uh, that sort of Blade Runner or Minority Report 
flying car type city, um, but in fact, a more self-sustaining, simpler urban environment that, that focuses on community and that ability of adapt, that, uh, that ability to adapt. Um, I think actually that cities will look more like, future cities will look more like cities of the past, albeit, albeit cleaner, where the existing built environment can be reused and repurposed. A good example of that would be the Georgian Terrace. The Georgian Terrace is probably the most um, flexible building typology we have. Originally there were houses, um, but now they have become, well, some of them still remain houses for those lucky few, but the rest are schools, offices, hospitals, they've been completely repurposed for all different types of uses. And I think it's that approach to the, our cities, our buildings and our design process that I think will actually inform cities of the future more. It's more a question of adapting what we have rather than building new. And I think that also lends itself to the targets we have set ourselves as a society in terms of um, low carbon, net zero carbon, um, by 2050, um, by using what we have is going to be help us get there, certainly. The other point is a change in mobility, i.e. getting around. Certainly in city centres, London being one of them, um, cars, you are penalised for being a car owner, certainly um, a certain type of car. Uh, I'm the owner of a diesel car. If I drive in central London, I am... I am uh, penalised, I have to spend or uh, pay quite a lot of money in that respect. So if we can somehow remove cars from our streets, which is already happening through the central um, um, charging zone and the ultra low emission zone, um, we are starting to decar our cities. And what that does is it starts to free up huge swathes of surface area. All of, most of the surface area of cities is, is is taken up by stationary cars. And if we can get that area back, we can repurpose it. We can create um, smaller parks, outdoor spaces for communities to use. The car parks become redundant in themselves. Could those become almost urban farms somewhere where we can capture water, grow food? The retention of water is a very, very important point. We've seen flash flooding across many cities, not just here. And could the, um, the transition of those released surfaces help us in some way to attain, to attain water when we need to? Um, so the existing building um, network as well, office buildings which were empty during COVID, um, people are gradually coming back. Some of those buildings might never be reused as offices again, but there's an opportunity there to repurpose them as residential buildings. Residential is a problem that we've had in this country for decades and that we don't have enough housing. If we could repurpose some of these buildings to be housing in the right way um, and in a controlled way, I think most importantly, then we can go some way to, to alleviating that problem, to putting less pressure on the supply of housing. And as a result, create a more affordable place to live. Cities have always been a fortress of the rich in many ways, certainly city centres. And could this be a way to help um, diversify city centres and create a more affordable place to live? Biophilia is a word that we have seen more recently in, in the design world as effectively planting. Um, when we put in planning applications for new buildings, local authorities in central London actually require us to plant a certain amount, either on the building itself or around the building, all of which goes a long way to, to provide that cooling, additional shading, air quality. What planting do does it actually improves air, qu air quality substantially, certainly in high traffic spaces. And also improves our well-being. Well-being is another word that we've seen a lot in the design world recently, and it's something that is becoming more and more important for the occupiers of be it um, office buildings or residential buildings. And also a mix of uses. I like, to, I like the idea that we will have a, more of a mix of uses going forward. Cities used to be like that, where um, residential and working environments were very much close, um, pinned together. They've separated over the years. Could this, um, the new sort of dawn of design and, and urban design 
Um, and I think there was that we'll talk about 15 minute cities later, but that notion of a 15 minute city, could it be, um, could it allow us to, to reintroduce those uses so they sit side by side and create more of a community within the areas that people live, something which has arguably been extracted from our cities over, over the years. Um, has the pandemic helped or hindered? I think the pandemic has been an accelerator of change, but it certainly won't kill off cities. If anything, it will do quite the opposite. It will help cities improve. And if you look over the years, over the centuries, certain drastic events have gone some way to improve the cities um, afterwards. Cholera, for example. Cholera killed hundreds of thousands of people, but off the back of it came the underground sewer. The Fire of London, off the back of the Fire of London came the Party Wall Act and eventually building regulations. Tuberculosis, tuberculosis created sanatoriums which were designed with no walls, um, as few partitions as you could, clean surfaces, all of which led to what is effectively now called minimalism, which is a global architectural language. So a lot of these events give rise to changes in architecture, changes in design, um, which are improvements because we learn from what's happened and try and stop it from happening again. Grenfell is probably the most recent event, tragically, um, that has required us to completely relook at the building regulations, certainly part B of the building regulations, which, was, which, which refers to fire. Um, that event will, has meant that we have improved the building regulations that we adhere to. Um, so there is more that we can do. Um, there, certainly within the City of London, there are many, many spaces completely underused that without the need for deep pockets can be turned back into um, public spaces, um, public realm that can induce that activity and induce the um, the ability to um, to meet, to come together, the reason why cities were built in the first place, really. And this notion of adaption, I think, is a really important one because um, like many old um, services of old, I'm thinking telegraph poles, uh, exchange centres, central London is full of exchange centres that are now completely empty because they're no longer needed. And they are being slowly repurposed to be other things, offices residential buildings and I think it, there should be an emphasis and an encouragement on approaching design of our cities in in that way and there is a there's a term that we have in our industry uh, I did not coin it by any means but flight to quality i.e this this notion that our buildings must do better now um, the pandemic climate change has meant that our buildings must do better. They must perform better. They must attract the people back. Certainly those office buildings that are now sitting empty need to attract the people back um, into them. Um, but in order to do that, they need to be safe. They need to be hassle-free. They need to be desirable. So when we are approaching a design brief, certainly for say an office building, we're approaching it in the same way that we would do a hotel actually. So we're bringing in gymnasiums, we're bringing in childcare, creches, laundry services, um, office buildings or the commercial sector is sort of merging, well, not just the commercial sector, a lot of sectors are merging into this one hospitality offer almost. The buildings themselves are becoming a service for the people that use them. Um, there's a, uh, there is a movement by a group of architects, we are one of them called Retrofit First. Retrofit First is about the promotion of the reuse of existing buildings. We as a practice have, re have, have always um, tried to reuse the buildings that we are given before we reach for the wrecking ball. In fact, we very rarely reach for the, for the wrecking ball. Um, that should be made um, more desirable for the for the landlords and the developers themselves. And I think actually what the past few years have done, certainly because of climate change, is made the notion of keeping existing buildings a fundamental requirement for development funds. That is uh, that is a probably the biggest shift that we've seen over the past few years, whereby we have to keep the existing buildings, not necessarily for um, 
climate change purposes, but actually because the funds our clients, their, their shareholders demand it. And I think that's a really important distinction that has happened over the years. There's other things that go that happen in our cities that are changing and will change how we shop, for example. Shopping is an interesting one. Before the pandemic, there were too many shops, a relic really of the pre-internet era. Um, there was too much bad retail and not enough good retail. And that is the pandemic has really focused the mind of retail designers and we do do shops as well. Um, and some examples being the bad retail, sadly the likes of Debenhams, um, even Jamie Oliver's restaurants that became so ubiquitous that people just ignored them in the end. Um, we worked for Fred Perry, um, global sort of clothing brand, and the design is very much about the brand and the experience of that brand. And I think that is something which has become more and more important to the retailers, to the big re retailers, and that shopping has become an experience. The shopping centres that are now sitting empty or changing hands for very little money are vulnerable. Um, but is there an opportunity again to repurpose those buildings? They're actually perfect for, for housing because they're built around certain areas, about, sort of around courtyards, um, places for meeting. Um, all the things that actually we really like about our cities is an opportunity, opportunity there to repurpose shopping centres to become uh, residential buildings, senior living complexes, um, a far more relevant arguably and, and brighter future for those buildings. And how we live, how we live is actually going to be um, uh, an interesting, a very um, pertinent point going forward. Um, generally, as I mentioned earlier, cities have been um, a place where ultimately um, rich people can live. Um, but the, uh, the influx of, of, of climate change and how we go about um, repurposing a lot of the buildings that I mentioned earlier and putting less pressure on supply will hopefully bring down those, those um, the price of housing and start to alleviate the issue of, of a lack of housing that we generally have in this country. But the homes themselves will also change. There is now a requirement to be able to work from home. That is not going away anytime soon. So the way in which we design our homes must cater for the ability to work as well as live within them. They, they could draw their energy, their heating from other sources, perhaps that are not the grid. Um, an emphasis on um, heat, uh, source heat pumps, ground source heat pumps, um, if, if possible. Um, solar panels, additional um, insulation. In Oslo, they extract heat from the sewers. And pump it into people's houses. You know, is that something? You know, it's these kind of methods um, that uh, that we can employ potentially going forward. When I say extract air from the sewers, it's not literally straight from the sewer. There's an element of cleansing that happens between, but it's a way to uh, to be less reliant on the grid and to help um, decarbonize the grid. Um, and in order to um, reduce contagions, I think we're going to see um, the introduction potentially of sort of almost like doormats in the built-in sanitizers that become a given of the houses that we live in and balconies, outdoor spaces, um, terraces, for example, they all become non-negotiable essentials of the buildings that we design. Um, so gardens, as I mentioned, the idea of communal spaces, um, especially given the hot summers that we are that we are experiencing now the ability for people for urbanites to sort of go outside and use communal garden spaces is is really going to be quite important as i mentioned the reduction of traffic is going, going to go some way to improve not only the air quality but the this, the, the land available for those for those um for those public parks um, and it will help us foster communities, arguably communities, that communal community um, environment that has been lost over the years. And if we can, if we can, um, Denver, for example, has 180 communal gardens within the city centre. You know, they have been they have been driven um, by the residents themselves. 
And I think if we can free up a lot of the, the land um, in and around people's housings, housing, um, there is opportunities um, to do that. So cities have always adapted. This is no different. They are, they are still as relevant now as they were since the beginning of time. Um, but COVID and climate change have acted as a disruptor. Um, but they will always improve as a result. And hopefully, um, with all the changes that will come, some of them we like to think are the ones that I've mentioned earlier, will create a greener, cheaper, healthier, less polluted, and arguably less lonely uh, place to be. So that's it. I don't know what that is at. Uh, 18, 19 minutes, I was close. Um, so, happy to take your questions. Thank uh, you, thank you very much, Oliver. That was very interesting. And yes, uh, if anyone has any questions for Oliver, um, please feel free to put them in the chat. Um, I have a couple to uh, start with. Um, you talked about how Oslo used air from, uh, from their sewers. Which other countries or cities across the world should we be looking to for inspiration on how to improve our own? Um, I think when well, I mentioned Oslo, I, I think I mentioned that there's a project in Barcelona where we where we plugged into their own district heating network, um, which itself was a system that that burns rubbish. Now. Um, that in itself has a certain amount of it's certain has a certain amount of carbon footprint to it, but at the same time, it's far better than than putting those putting that rubbish into landfill or putting it on a boat to send it to landfill. So um, Barcelona was a city that we that we've come across recently that um, that has made big strides in terms of decarbonizing from the grid at least. Um, cities like uh, Melbourne, which when which planted went on a, on a tree planting sort of frenzy during um, the during the pandemic um, is another example of where they've gone um, sort of beyond you know where where other cities are in terms of the improvements they've made because of COVID. There's others, Buenos Aires as well did um, a huge greening sort of um, process of the city centre still going through it, I understand. Um, but yeah, so I think there's always going to be countries, uh, Nordic countries, which are using wood as a construction material, more so than the more traditional steel and concrete. Steel and concrete are very um, carbon intensive um, in terms of how they are produced, mainly. They're, they last a long time, but the process of producing that steel and concrete is extremely carbon hungry. So the Nordic countries, I think, are leading the way in terms of using um, timber as a construction method. It's something that we are doing here as well. We've just finished a, a timber building here in London, um, but it's a way that is far less um, carbon uh, hungry uh, if, uh, in that way. So there are, there are plenty of countries doing things, and actually in the UK, we're doing some very good things. There's a, there's a district heating system in central London that um, is, is similar to the one I mentioned in Barcelona. And it's just making sure that the developers and the, the house builders and the office developers, et cetera, are incentivized to use those systems. And um, it becomes commercially viable for that to happen. That's what will make this more common. Um, so yeah, there's some examples there, I hope that, of, of other places. Nice. Perfect. Um, another quick one, um, hopefully quick. Uh, you touched on it slightly earlier, talking about how London wants to be a zero carbon city by 2050. Do you feel this is truly a possible endeavour? If so, what are the main areas that need to be addressed in doing so? Um, as I said, I'm trying not to make any predictions. So whether we get there or not, we shall see. Um, I think I mean, sort of net zero is a term. I think we need to manage people's expectations about that particular term. There is no such thing as a net zero building. I mean, it, it, there is a less, a, as in less um, net zero carbon, there is a less carbon building. 
Um, so I think we can reduce the amount of embodied carbon and operational operational carbon in our buildings substantially going forward by doing all the things that I've just mentioned. Um, net zero is is a sort of a, a, a bit of jargon, let's face it, because we'll, buildings will always require a certain amount of 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 um, of carbon to to build them and run them. There are certain examples um, where the operation of those buildings actually does mean they function as net zero. In urban centres, that is extremely difficult. Um, so I think making strides in building materials um, by connecting to district heating systems, by introduce, you know, replacing people's boilers with air source or ground source heat pumps, um, by reducing traffic in city centres are all going to go a long way towards reducing our carbon footprint as, 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 city, as cities, um, I think. Um, 2050 is a, long, is a long way, it's not that far off in terms of carbon. Um, whether we get to a net zero carbon, I think we will have to see. But the, but the will and the intention is there, I think, from, from the from authority, local authorities and government down um, to make it a reality um, going forward, yeah. Very nice, thank you. Um, there have been a couple of people asking questions along this line. Do architects and urban planners use data as much as they should do? Um, and should cities be uh, data ready? Um, Right, uh, and is uh, the right data readily available for these uh, future cities? I think that that is something. It's a good question. I think that that is something that we have seen more of. I would say over the past five, five to ten years, and hasn't quite filtered through yet. The way in which we design buildings and operate buildings um, can be a fully digital process. It's it, there's a, there's a a certain certification that you can achieve um, called smart building. And what smart building does is effectively, it, it's a bit like the, the readout dashboard of your car. It'll tell you exactly how much electricity, how much gas, how many lights are on within your building. So you can really, you could really understand how much energy use um, the buildings um, are, are, are consuming. What that does, it and where it's really valuable, is um, in the operation of buildings, because it's the operation of buildings that is also a big culprit in terms of their carbon footprint. And I'm talking about empty office towers um, that have all their lights on, um, which if there was a, or, and there are um, certain um, interfaces and softwares that allow the building to be far more intelligent and to shut down certain systems, turn, turn off certain lights when people leave the room, etc. That makes a big, big difference. And if in, in sort of the, the utopian future, as a, a landlord of, of maybe a, a, a sort of a host of buildings, I'm thinking British land or land securities, you know, the big sort of UK developers, what they could end up doing is, and this is the intention, is that they effectively manage their whole portfolio and, and understand how much each building is using, how much energy each building is using. And if, if one is using too much, store that and give it to another building. So you start to become far more efficient about the energy use across a portfolio of buildings. We are not there yet, but the the technologies that we use and design with and monitor our buildings with will give us that data. So I think it's something that is in transition now. It's not necessarily, um, I think we need another, I would say another five years for that to really filter through into the design and construction process. Um, there are other things that we can that we can do in terms of data collection, the occupancy of buildings. You know how many people are are in the building at any one time. Um, those kind of things. Um, but I think the sort of the big the the target is to get to a situation where the the data that we have reduces the the energy consumption of a building. We're getting there. 
I think as, as an industry, um, we're not quite there yet. Thank you, Jack Doe, for that question. Um, a couple to do with the pandemic along the same vein. Um, yeah. Tim Catchwell asks, should we be allowing high density housing after what has been seen happen during the pandemic? And Elizabeth Anderson asks, do you think design for new office buildings will change due to working from home being a possibility? Okay, I'll try and do the second one first. Um, the will design will office buildings change as a result of working from home yes they already are um because in order to get people back into the office those buildings have to attract them back they have to be safe they have to be hassle-free they have to allow for all the things that you can't do at home you've got to remember that there's as a as a as a working culture the businesses that we are all working in have their own cultures and without being together then those those cultures disappear and i think that i don't think that will happen i think working from home is um is something that will always be well i think for the for the, for the future going forward will be something that happens less than being in the office themselves. I think we're sort of seeing a bit of a shift now from what was a kind of work from home to a sort of hybrid model, now to a kind of right in the office, say four days a week and one day at home. Um, but even then, it means that the office buildings and the office spaces that we occupy have to do certain things better. We spend a lot of time doing this on Zoom. So it means that you end up designing lots of sort of spaces for those types of conversations and those types of meetings. So the acoustic implications are actually quite, quite significant. Um, so yeah, the interior design changes. Um, I think the, the difference between a new build office and a sort of, a, and a retrofitted office comes from a different argument, which is about carbon footprint, climate change, etc. But the answer is yes to that second part of the question. The first part was, remind me. Um, it's about high density housing. High density housing, okay. Uh, high density housing. The simple answer is that we kind of need high density housing if we're going to achieve the numbers that we, um, that we have set or at least targeting. Um, housing has always been a problem in this country, mainly because it's quite a flat country. Everyone lives in single-story houses. So, so it's, it's a problem that we have to face. High-density housing is part of that solution. That's not to say that those houses or flats or apartments are bad places to live, just as long as all of those other things that I mentioned, like the terraces and the balconies, become those non-essential items that go into these places. So there's an emphasis on us as designers and the developers to ensure that those, that housing is good, is fit for purpose in today's world. And that is different to what it was two, three years ago. Um, so the answer is yes, I think it is a requirement more than um, a question. It's about good design and making sure that those buildings are nice places to be. Um, and nice places to live. Very nice. Um, so Tim Bolton asks, um, Tom Bolton, sorry, do you see with the new demand for green space a move towards a vertical garden village way of living in London, like the Melbourne, di like the direction Melbourne is developing with skyscrapers like STHBNK by Bueller? Um, and I also want to add to this a question that I was going to ask as well. Um, when it comes to vertical gardens, I was reading the other day that apparently the, a third is effective as horizontal gardens, such as roof terraces or roof gardens. Um, what are the benefits that you feel, though, for having them over these roof gardens? As in like a, vert like a, pl a vertical planted wall versus effectively a flat garden. Um, I think in terms of the plants themselves, they're not going, they're actually harder to do because they're depending on their orientation, sometimes they're, they're, they're quite hard to maintain. Um, the, I think they're always going to be slightly less efficient than having a flat garden, but they do certain things. They provide a certain solution to problems on buildings mainly. So um, a plant screen, you know, the top of a building where you see a plant screen, which 
behind has all the air conditioning units and that kind of stuff that's stuck on the roof. Is it nicer to look at a, a, a green, a planted wall rather than a sort of metal a metal wall? And I think probably everyone would agree it would be nicer to look at a planted wall. So they're, so they're sort of architectural mechanisms um, that, that um, provide that element of greenery. And remember, that the green aspect does certain things. It, it, it helps the air because plants suck in carbon dioxide and spit out oxygen. So it does actually help the air in urban conditions if there's enough of it. Um, trees provide that shading um, in, in sort of locations that in, in even British cities now we're experiencing in, in, in the summer can become quite hot. So those, so those trees at least become quite important. And there's also the aspects of water retention Water retention is, is actually becoming a really big problem. Um, and vertical walls do that in a slightly, not in such a good way, because obviously it's vertical and the water just, um, you know, sort of goes straight down rather than sinks into it. Um, water retention, we saw last the flooding last year, you know, if a lot of our surfaces are hard, um, planted surfaces retain water, capture water, and put less pressure on our drains. Um, so there's lots of benefits that come from planting. Vertical planted walls are a useful architectural mechanism, I would say. Um, I, would, I think they're probably less efficient than a standard flat garden. I mean, there's also, as human beings, we like to look at plants. It does help our well-being. It does go somewhat, some way to that, to that um, more uh social um improvement to our to our to our uh, you know built environment thank you um sari fieldings asks uh given the way energy transport and trade costs are rising driving materials up dramatically how do you see our use of materials changing that's an excellent question and one that is um is extremely pertinent right now um what we're seeing, and obviously with the sanctions in, in Russia, um, so Russia is the biggest exporter of softwood. Um, so ply, sheets of plyboard. Um, so we're seeing, obviously, um, a, you know, that completely stop as a, as, a, as a flow of material. So you have to look elsewhere. Um, the fuel, obviously the, the increase of fuel price means that the production of certain materials, steel, concrete, certainly steel, um, is becoming prohibitively expensive. Um, I think it is going to be a big factor in how materials are chosen. The cost of them is one thing. The, um, the embodied carbon footprint of them is another. I think what will eventually happen, what will happen, and it's already happening, is that um, materials will be sourced from as much from domestic markets as, as they possibly can, because obviously transporting goods is also carbon intensive. So we try to, um, we as a practice and other practices have employed a system whereby we have what's called a material passport. Each material has a sort of a rating as to its, um, its carbon footprint, where it's come from, its durability, and we we select those materials quite quite um, methodically uh, in order to employ into our buildings. So I think there's there's a lot of factors going on. Inflation is one. The war in Ukraine is another, and the sanctions in Russia are another. Um, and the climate change and carbon the carbon footprint of and the embodied energy of these. Um, of these materials is another. So it's actually, a, it's, a, it's a moving feast right now. And actually as an industry, we're still slightly grappling with it. What we are seeing is prices going up um, pretty much across the board of most materials. Um, I think we can help ourselves by selecting construction methods and materials that are domestic, produced domestically, bricks, for example, um, bricks are produced domestically to not necessarily there's an element of energy use but but actually they are they are quite friendly at the moment in terms of 
their cost. Uh, so that's, but it's something that we are looking at very carefully right now as an industry. Great. Um, David Wallace uh, says, what impact do you think movement towards circular economies would have on the makeup on, of cities of the future? So we are doing a building uh, for, for British land in central London that will be built purely out of demolished materials from other sites. And, it's, and, and that is very much driven, not just by us, but by the developer themselves. And there's lots of buildings that, and, and designs that are coming out now that are doing exactly that. There's lots of de demolition, and historically that stuff just goes into the bin, effectively. Um, occasionally it's reused. But what we're trying to do now as designers is to really select um, material choices um, based on, on what other people are demolishing, which makes it a lot harder, um, but, and certainly uh, makes getting warranties quite difficult, but it, it's, uh, it is, a, it is a, a science in itself and it's something that we are, we are doing as a practice. So I think the circular economy is actually really quite interesting and it's something that I think will snowball um, because it's, uh, it's a really um, interesting space right now and it's something that we are dabbling in and, and others are as well. So I think there's also, there's also commercial um, benefit in that it's all secondhand, so it's, it's cheaper. Um, so that makes a difference to the cost plan. Um, but yeah, uh, we, we try as much as we can to reuse what we can um and where applicable it's not everywhere but we can certainly go some way to to reducing that that um bidding of, of existing materials thank you david for that um Tor winkler wants to know what in your view could be the solution to the complete and massively carbon releasing process of demolition seemingly inevitable for aging still heavy city high rises such as those found in New York, which are nearing their end of life. So I just repeat the first, the first bit of the question, please. What in your view uh, could be the solution to uh, the massively carbon releasing process of the demolition of these skyscrapers? Well, keeping them, basically. I think keeping the buildings. The thing is, a lot of these buildings are built either in steel or concrete. And the steel and the concrete will last another 500 years untouched. So there is no point in demolishing them. Um, it make, doesn't make commercial sense either. So there must be an emphasis on retention of these existing buildings because buildings can be reused. Certain things have to change. Windows generally have to change after about 25, 30 years when the mechanics, the gaskets, and all the actual, the, the, the bracketry starts to degrade. Um, those things change, but this, the main, the, the main carbon of a building in is, 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 is in its structural frame, especially with concrete and steel buildings. So the emphasis must be on retention rather than rebuild. And it's something that we as a practice, as I mentioned, retrofit first, which is, which is exactly that. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a movement by a group of us who are saying, right, we must keep these buildings rather than knock, knocking them down. Um, and it is it, it, actually fairly common now. Um, it, I, I think there's also a, an emphasis on government as well. Right now, there is no tax benefit to keeping an existing building. You pay the same VAT on existing, refurbishing an existing building versus a new building. And that should not be the case. There should be a VAT benefit by keeping existing buildings. And that's something that the retrofit sort of movement, if you like, is lobbying with the government. Because if we are going to achieve the targets that we need to achieve, we have to keep our existing buildings. The most sustainable thing you can do is keep a building. That's the most sustainable thing you can do. Everything else is an, is an add-on. Um, but if you can keep frames, keep steel, um, then you're going a long way to reducing, to decarbonizing the industry and, and reducing our carbon footprint. Great, thank you. Um, I had one more question. You talked earlier about the 15 minute city as well as a change in mobility. What are your impressions of future cities such as Neom in Saudi Arabia 
which aims to create a fully automated public transport. Yeah, I'm, I'm not that familiar with, with Neom. As, as, as I had a quick look at it earlier. As far as I can see, it's a brand new city in, in Saudi, I think, is it Saudi Arabia? Um, the notion of new cities is not a new one. Um, you know, they've been doing it for a long time, certainly in more developing countries. I think the benefit of doing it is you can you can you can build build well and sustainably from the off. Yeah, so that is always going to be the positive out of out of new cities, just as long as the city is required. <laughs> yeah, and and it's not and there's nothing else that they can use or adapt or move into um, to solve the same problem. I think that's my view on it, in that it's a good thing to do, but in itself, it is not carbon neutral. It is a very intensive carbon process to put in any transport system or build any building. Um, so just as long as the reason for it is sound, and there's a requirement for it, and there is no other option, then then I think it's it's yeah it's a worthwhile endeavour. Um, I think again going back to the previous point, the first port of call is should be well what can we reuse here um, to solve the same problem? They might not have anything to reuse, so in that case, you end up building a city. Um, but I think uh, the notion of it is 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 fine if the buildings and everything are designed in a way that is as carbon neutral as possible. Um, but yeah, just as long as the, reason, the reasons for it are sound, then, then uh, I think it's yeah, an interesting project. Um, Thank you. Um, I think we've got time for maybe a couple more. Um, there's one here from JD. Uh, given the need for a systemic solution to climate related challenges across the board, to what extent is there good collaboration between building architects and city planners? For example, EFW plants that generate electricity and no low-grade heat as waste can be used for high-temp district heating near to sources of waste. This can relocalize waste treatment and heating supply, but these plants are the ideal neighbors for the residential area. Yeah, so I think there's a, I think there's a few things in there. I think the main bit was about the district heating systems, and that is something which is is we have here in London. As I mentioned, we've done we did a building in Barcelona, which uses this local district heating system. Um, the benefit of them, obviously, is that they are off grid and they and they um, they they reuse, they capture energy and heat from other sources, and that is a a very sustainable thing. Um, so. The result is that yes, you've got a um, a plant box somewhere in the city that is potentially an eyesore, but actually the City Gen building, which is in Smithfield Market, is actually really quite beautiful. Um, so I think the architecture of it can be adapted. Um, I think the first part of the question is the, about collaboration um, about from with architects and city planners. I think there's always been collaboration with architects and city planners because we actually want the same thing. Um, the the um, the disruptor in that conversation is the developer because the developer wants something bigger. So you then have, you then have you then have this sort of balance of of, of us as architects keeping the, our developer client happy, but also the local authority happy. I think what we've seen, and we're trying to sort of bridge this with the district heating system question, is making it obligatory to plug into these district heating systems if you can because i know certain schemes um and I won't, that will not be mentioned that that avoid it um, for commercial reasons so making it obligatory um, would be an interesting step um, actually now um, the agenda of a lot of these developers and their funds are very much more geared towards sustainability uh, ESG, etc. So actually, they are now going out of their way to connect, these, to connect to these things. So interestingly, it's not us necessarily that's driving it. We've always kind of driven it. It's a commercial thing, and it comes from um, the the landowners of the buildings themselves. And that has changed mass a lot over the past, I would say, two or three years. Where now, before it was something that was 
people try to avoid. Now, actually, it's something that you go out of your way to do. Um, so I think we're going in the right direction in that respect. District heating systems are always a very costly endeavor for the cities that they are in, but ultimately they pay themselves back over a number of years. So I would, I would advocate the use of them as much as possible where we can. Great. Um, finally, from Caroline, is the world of architecture an exciting place to be right now? Absolutely. It is it's never been more exciting, actually, Caroline, um, because we've got a lot of problems that we need to solve through design. You know, one is how to make our cities more sustainable, how to make our cities more greener, hospitable, cheaper. You know, these actually come back to the built environment, really. We've also got to get our, people, our office workers back. We've got to make the cities a better place to be. So we have that comes from design. Um, so yeah, I think it's a really interesting time for us as architects and designers. Um, and yeah, long may it continue. I think it's well, not COVID, but uh, uh, certainly the, the challenges that we have as an industry, I think is, is making it a very exciting time for us. So yeah, it is. Thank you very much, Oliver. That has been fascinating. Um, I think Caroline wants to say some things now, but thank you very much. Brilliant. Well, look, thanks to both of you. Thanks to Guy and to Oliver. I know you're both very busy in different ways, so giving up your time is, is invaluable to us and really important. And thank you all for coming this evening. Um, I think you'll agree that was an absolutely fascinating insight into the future of cities. Just a quick plug for our next Big Thinking Talk, which will be in May, which will feature old Radley and James Arby, founder of independent think tank Rethink X and author of the book Rethinking Humanity. We probably will cover a lot of the themes that we maybe talked about tonight about how we will live and work in the future as well. Um, so James will be talking to us about the scale of technology-driven disruption and its implications across society. So we hope to see you then at the next Big Thinking Talk and enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you for coming. Goodbye. Thank you for joining us. Check our channels for the latest news and events from the Radleyan Society.